المعون رأيت الذي يكذب بالدين has been reported as several other of the surahs that we will be talking about by Ata and Jabir at Meccan surah. While Ibn Abbas and Qutada have reported that it was revealed in Medina rather than Mecca. Of course, brings us back the whole fascinating issues of the early Quran versus the later Quran, whether we can actually ascertain that with any degree of certainty. Commences with Ar'ayta alladhi yukazibu biddin. Have you seen Ar'ayta? One of the commonly employed Quranic styles is the rhetorical question. A rhetorical question that is thrown out, which talks about, have you seen such and such? But yet one senses that it is invoking not physical testimony, not testimony of a particular event, or a particular person, or a particular incident, but the invocation of a act. And that act is the very word used. Ara'ayta, have you seen? The act of perception. The invocation of the act of perception itself. Then, by describing the object of the perception, rather than identifying the object of the perception. So when it comes, it says, have you see, seen, not have you seen Muhammad, have you seen Umar, have you seen Adil, here it would be what? Identifying the object of the perception, right? It's an identification, Omar, Muhammad, Khalid, but rather describing it. So it, it, have you seen that who does X, Y, and Z? Here it is describing the object of perception. Then it tells you that what it invokes is not the perception of a person or an event, but a quality in itself. It is invoking upon you, it is calling upon you to engage in an act. The act is the act of perception, have you seen, and the point of it is to identify a set of qualities or characteristics. Hence, the object of the perception could be another or could be you. And this is one of the rhetorical powers of the Quran, that then the object could be you, could be another, could be dynamic as well as evolving. But by invoking the rhetorical question, Ar'ayta, then you know that one must be, must engage in this act of perception that comes essentially from reflection. Okay, so what are the qualities that are being identified? I'm sorry, being described to us that 
remember, we, we mentioned several times that the, the, the 30th part of the Quran sets the values and the foundations upon which all else is to be built. If one, for example, we're ta as we were talking earlier uh, about obedience to your parents, in order one, for one to analyze it, it must be analyzed in light of the values set, uh, uh, pillared in the foundation of Islam by the 30th part of the Quran. And then you go on from there. So here it is giving us very much like Tabbat Yada Abi Lahab, the one we talked about last time, it is giving us a description of a personality type or personality types that can be discovered when one engages in reflection, perceptive reflection. You sort of it's, it's, a, it's an elusive personality type, as we will see, that it identifies it as not an apparent thing, like you see a sparrow or, or, or a tree. You know, it doesn't take much effort to identify a tree, especially if you're standing right out. But it is more like an elusive, it contains elusive and deceptive qualities that requires a degree of intense reflection to, in order to identify it and capture it and say, aha. I see this personality type either in myself or in others. That, as the case might be. Yeah. Is the reflection due to the fact that it's uh, it's a characteristic that you're talking about, or is it the actual, actual act of, of, of seeing? I'm not sure if that's really much of a distinction. Like, because it could have been a descriptive identification of the object, but there would not have been as much reflection of that kind. Um, no. If, oh, you mean. If you know, there was an identification of the object, there would not be as much reflection. Right. But there is a descriptive identification. Because of the descriptive nature, there is reflection because you have to find the commonality of attributes. The, it is not that the, 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 the perception, the, the reflection, or the, the ability to perceive, and actually much of the Quran after that, constantly fo um, focuses on this notion of of reflection and perception as the way to Allah and the way to distinguish truth from false. I mean, it, it is remarkable that the, when, when you come, you do an analysis of the Quran, you find that it's not, the Quran doesn't emphasize the text as the, the way to, to distinguishing wrong from right, but actually uh, 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 focuses upon reflection and innate according to the fitrah, according to, 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 to your, your innate sense. But this sort of tacking into or employ the, the um, uh, employment of the innate sense in a process of reflection that gives you true perception and understanding. And one finds this time and time again in the Quran. All I'm saying is there are more powerful examples of this elsewhere. But all I'm saying is that when it says Ara'ayta, it, it invokes an act that it seems to deem, that Allah seems to deem necessary. And not for you to, to witness physical, in fact the Quran rarely talks about witnessing as witnessing physical events. It 
often talks about shahada as if it is a witnessing that comes as the product of reflection and true perception. And that's why you say ashhad and la ilaha illallah mean I bear witness. Well, you haven't seen Allah. And in fact, you haven't seen the Prophet. But it is your, 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 your perceptive reflections that is supposed to give you a, a, a state of knowledge that transcends physical objects. Huh? So when you say, we could take that to mean, where is that person who goes around disbelieving in, in, in religion? Okay? But that's not what it's talking about. It's not telling you go on a witch hunt to find that person, grab him and do something to him. It is, it is very much like testimony bearing witness to the existence of Allah and Muhammad. It is invoking upon you a state of awareness that transcends physical realities, very much like the Shahada. And time and time we see that in the Quran. So the distinction between the two between what? Shahada and the yeah. the, the, the Shahada, of course, is the byproduct of Ru'ya. Okay. That who disbelieves in Deen. Now, remember <coughs> that Deen is from the word Dain. Dain means what? Loan. Loan or debt, right? So here, it is not that. And Dean is, is the way which is defined or chartered for you by God. But Dean also, if you remember when we talked earlier, when we talked about the Fatha, that it is also a debt, the accountability. Both are invoked in this expression. And that's why, for example, Ikrama and Mujahid, some of the very early uh, um, transmitters on the Quran, <coughs> emphasize the meaning of Hisab, the meaning of accountability. Ibn Abbas, the companion and, the, and, and, and one of you know, one of the most corner store commentators on the Quran, emphasized that Yukadubiddin, it's to deny Hukmillah, to deny the power of God's command. So the first step for this, this, this personality or this quality or this characteristics these characteristics that we are going to be able to recognize through the process of reflection that transcends physical realities the first identification is that it is a person who one does not seem to readily recognize God's sovereignty over matters. In other words, obedience, this goes back to, to things I've been ranting and raving about, again, obedience to parents and things like that, that God's sovereignty as essential. 
that the deen, in the sense of the way, being defined not primarily but solely by Allah, is not readily recognized by this person. Two, the issue of hisab and jaza and iqab, accountability, are not readily in front of this person's eyes, not within this person's present consciousness. Why? Because when it says, you kathibu, hmm, it doesn't say, What's the difference between you kazibu and kazaba? A continuous present act, right? And consequently, it is not that this person comes to deen. It is not talking just about the Catholic, in other words. It doesn't come to a person that says, oh, Islam, I don't believe in Islam. And in fact, it would become quite clear that it's not talking about kuffar at all. It's talking about Muslims. Of course, who can tell me exactly right away, right now, why? Because it's talking about prayer. Prayer, right. So, so it actually turns out that it's not talking about kuffar at all. It's actually talking about a Muslim, but we'll come to that. So, it is not talking about, have you seen that who disbelieved kazdaba in the past, in deen? It is talking about a continuous action. How can you continually disbelieve when, in fact, it talks about you as a, someone who prays? Now, this is confusing. If I disbelieve in religion, but it then refers to me as someone who constantly forgets prayer later on. So it is not talking about a Muslim, for example, who comes and says, I don't you know, I'm a Muslim, but I really don't believe in the sun. It is talking about something much more subtle than that. Something that requires ru'ya, that requires reflection in order to attain a level of perception. <clears throat> because of this continuous notion, and if you think of us as human beings, you find that it actually makes a lot of sense. That accountability, jaza. Uh, uh, um, uh, and iqab, either being rewarded or punished, or hukm Allah, the sovereignty of God, for a practicing Muslim who's not all that great, is not a zero-sum proposition. Hmm? In other words, they struggle with it. At times, they recognize one day, or maybe actually to be more accurate, one hour of the day, they might be completely sincere in recognizing the sovereignty of God and in having accountability as a present reality in front of them. But the rest of the day, they are completely forgetful of that. In other words, while their senses come to life, you know, every now and then, they, they listen to a good rendering of the Qur'an, a good recitation, so they're touched for half an hour or five minutes or whatever. They, uh, for some reason, they, you know, they're, they're worried about something or they're uh, depressed or whatever it is. And, you know, they, every hundred prayers, they pray one sincere prayer that really touches their heart. This is the continuous action of takzib. 
engaged in this continuous process of takzib, of disbelief in, uh, and here not, and this is quite interesting. It could have said, or kafara bid-deen, that who here, then it is the one who disbelieved. But here it says, yukadzib which means give the lie to, give the lie to, which in English is incoherent in many ways, except in, 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 in maybe earlier English. But what does that mean? Why does it say you kazib? Is it that I come and say, I really don't believe in accountability? No. It is not that you say it. And this is when we talk about prayer. It is that your behavior tells me what you really have in your heart. And you'll see this when we start talking about, is that it is not that you're a Kafir. You're not. It is not that you're a Mushrik. It is not that you're a Munkir. It is not that you say it doesn't exist. But your behavior tells me you don't really, in sincere fashion, believe it. How is that? I come and you tell me, you know, it's raining outside. And I look at my wife and I say, is it? And she says, so I walk out without an umbrella. You come and tell me, I, you know, I heard, I told you it was raining outside. I say, no, no, I believed you. Perhaps in some really superficial way I believed you. But when it came down to it, it was my wife who I believed. It was my, my behavior reflected essentially a sense of negation of trust. Likewise, these individuals, when it comes to their behavior, it really shows that despite of what they say, they are, in a fund fundamental way, iman or true belief True awareness of accountability, of God's sovereignty, hasn't settled in their hearts. Now, in this context, I should tell you that there are many reports about who this verse was revealed about. I mean, who, the, who this uh, surah was revealed about. One and these are the ones that I could remember or could find in, in the books that I have here. One was Al-As bin Wa'il al-Sahami. This was reported by Kalbi wa Muqatil. Muqatil, this is the guy that, that I have the manuscript by at home. The, the one who wrote in the first century. The we, we fight over whether he was Ibn Muqatil, but he was probably Muqatil. Okay, other saddi said Al-Walid bin Mughira. I found this in, in Muqatil as well, when I looked at the manuscript. Said that, saddi said Al-Walid bin Mughira. A third report that I remember, but don't remember from where, said that it was Abu Jahl. 
Another report in one is by a Bahak said it was Amr bin Haiz. Another report said no, the surah was revealed about Abu Sufyan. Now here, what is problematic about all these reports, and that's why eventually none of them are really relied on, is Al-As bin Wa'il al-Sahami, Al-Walid bin Mughira, Abu Jahl, and Abu Sufyan were all non-Muslims. If this verse, if, these, if the surah was, was revealed in Mecca, huh, then they were not Muslims. If the surah was revealed in Medina, they were still not Muslims. And it is not believable that it would have been revealed about Abu Sufyan after he converted. Right? Oh, and Abu Jahl eventually gets killed in battle. So, but then, but when it talks about those who are forgetful about their prayers, then it's talking about Muslims. I mean, in fact, it would have been a very good thing if these kuffar didn't pray because they pray to, to idols. It would be incomprehensible that God is blaming them for forgetting to pray to their idols. Am I right? I mean, it's just incomprehensible that God is saying, oh, they're, they're really bad. They don't pray to, to their idols enough. Consequently, as, as Razi and the later, the later commentators, they said this is absurd. How could it have been revealed about any of these people? It must have not been revealed. And in fact, it doesn't have a certain person that it was revealed about, but it was simply revealed about a characteristic equality, etc., etc. Huh? No one early says that. No, there, no. Um, uh, in, in fact, uh, if, even if you look at Muqatil and you look in, 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 in what Muqatil says, as Saddi says, and even in the in those who say the Haq said, etc., etc., um, they they don't say this is in fact what it, it was revealed for, but they say it has been reported. We've heard but then go on to discuss it as if it doesn't relate to these people at all. Except in one, in, with one exception. Uh, that who says that it was revealed about Abu Sufyan says that it was revealed because uh, um, um, that it was revealed about, sorry. Those, those who say that it was revealed about Abu Sufyan have two versions. One that says it was revealed about, about Abu Sufyan, but doesn't say it as an assertion of fact, says it, we have heard it reported that it was revealed about Abu Sufyan, and then go on to discuss it as if it's not about Abu Sufyan. Another one, which I found very intriguing, said it was revealed about Abu Sufyan after he converted. Um, and because Abu Sufyan, an orphan, came up to him while he was talking to someone and asked money. And Abu Sufyan hit him with a, with a stick that was in his hand. And so it was revealed to condemn Abu Sufyan's behavior as a Muslim. But then that just affirms the point that this is a, a surah about Muslims, not, you know, does yeah. Anyone, does anyone make the argument that maybe the first part is about Muslims and the second about non-Muslims, the second part is warning Muslims not to be like that? No, because of, uh, like, yeah, I mean, because of the, of the fact that, um, 
it would break the integrity of the Torah because it says فذلك, فذلك. I mean it, 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 it's sort of a um, um, there is a wasl there between the one and the other okay Okay, أرأيت الذي كذب الدين فذلك الذي يدعو اليتيم الذي يدعو اليتيم that who what how is it translated in, in your translation that such is the man who repulses the orphan with harshness okay in one of the readings in one of the qiraz it is يدعو اليتيم يدعو is the way it is in most Qurans now but one of the readings is Yada uh, al-yatim means to leave the orphan or to abandon the orphan or to ignore, desert the orphan. In both cases, it, it means the, the, the idea of not take care of with some assertive, assertiveness in doing so. So, for example, Mujahid says that it means humiliate or degrade or disrespect yuhakkar al-yateen that does not think much of the orphan that's mujahid that reported that al-saddi says there it's something beyond that or something more general than that actually it is commits injustice or treats the orphan unfairly yadlimu al-yateen which could include disrespecting or, or simply looking down upon um, in any form, but also includes stealing money from the orphan. In either case, it is the notion that this person who is in a state of takzib, in a state of giving the lie, is... is, is uh, their behavior now starts confirming or starts exemplifying to us what is problematic about their awareness of their realities. One, a fundamental part of their behavior is not, we're not going to talk about even people who steal directly from the orphan, but are simply harsh, uh, not very empathetic or sympathetic to an orphan. This is not some, simply someone without a mother or father, but the orphan is a symbolic representation for any person in any society that, that represents the powerless and the weak. In the times of the Prophet, the symbolic representation of the powerless and the weak was the orphan. But it is, it is really, it would be quite absurd to, to maintain that, well, you know, uh, uh, it is a severe crime to uh, repulse someone who's orphaned, even if they're very rich. But it is not a crime to repulse someone who is handicapped uh, with parents who are very poor. I mean, it would make, make no sense. It is whoever symbolically stands for the idea of being powerless. And, and on the margins of society. In other words, the mustadaf, the, the, the oppressed, the weak. Here, the yatim note, it is not an issue of wealth. 
He does not repulse, and this is a very important point, and I'll show you in a second why. It is not that he repulses the orphan because the orphan is poor. The orphan could be rich, could be poor. He repulses the orphan, why? What is it about the orphan that he is repulsing? Wealth versus status. Exactly, status. In other words, his problem with the orphan is, is not what was wrong in pre-Islamic Arabia about, about an orphan. About an orphan. This is, it was a very low status to be in. Remember when, when, when uh, um, um, the Prophet's mother takes him and to, to give him to a, a, um, a witness, right? No one would take him. No one would take him despite of the fact he was from the clan of Hashem. Why would no one would take him? Because he was orphan. He, that's not a very good status. And Halima eventually leaves without him and then tells her husband, you know, remember the orphan, let's go back and take him. I, and, you know, nothing better. The status of the orphan was abysmal. And by the way, for your information, an orphan in, in Arabic language is not someone who doesn't have a mother. It's only someone who doesn't have a father. Not necessarily in the Quran, but in the Arabic language and in the way people use the orphan, which tells you it's an issue of status, is if you lost your mother, you are not considered a yatim. Even today, or even today, even today, yatim means you've lost your father. So if you're you're not a yatim if your mother died, but you are a yatim if your father died, and it is considered even today, by the way, it is considered a somewhat humble status to be in. So if you you, you say, oh, this person is a yatim, then you feel oh, you feel sorry for them, but you also. I mean, that's if you're a despicable human being, but you also feel they're not your level. So quite often in, in schools, in public schools, for example, in Egypt, someone who is a team, doesn't have a father, will not be invited to dinners and social events and things like that because it's, they're, they're, they're being raised by their mother, by their mother. And even if the mother is married and they now have someone who's taking care of them, they're still not the real father is raising them, so it's different. So, but this is remnants from the old traditions and the old culture. It's not as bad as it used to be, when you know it was considered sort of degrading to marry an orphan. Um, but and notice when Khadija marries Muhammad she's a what? She's a widow. I mean, orphan and widow. These are the two really miserable things. If you're a widow uh, or orphan or a, a, a back in pre-Islamic Arabia being ex-wife, it wasn't that bad. But being divorced is not that bad. A woman, a woman who's single, that was really bad. Or a woman who's widow, widowed would rarely be married again and would remain a widow for a long time because it was marrying a widow was pretty much like marrying an orphan. I mean, just not a very good um, status to be in. So again, no. الذي يكذب بالدين فذلك الذي يدوع اليتيم يدوع يدوع or يدع in either case yes. When you said wealth versus status, but Nika was also wealthy, so and she was a widow, so still in case that she was. Yeah. In other words, even an orphan, 
an author could be rich, okay, but that doesn't, that will not remedy culturally, I'm talking, speaking, that does not remedy their position. That's, that's why after that, start talking about wealth specifically. So in other words, the, the, the character of that person who is in a state of um, lack of confrontation with the reality of accountability is what? Is one is that they um, repulse a human being because of their status. And here again, you have to think of status not just simply in terms of one being an orphan, but generally whatever is considered a degraded position. Even race, maybe? I would extend it even to race. In other words, they take a position because of someone's status, regardless of the wealth. In addition to that, وَلَا يَحُضُّ عَلَى طَعَامِ الْمِسْكِينَ Here we get wealth. The, the additional characteristic about them is, can you read what this says? not defeating an indigent. Okay. Here, and note here, does it say and repulses the indigent? No. It says and does not encourage. Now, here it's not simply encouraged, but to advocate, to call for. Now, if you think about it, try to construct a literary image, and you'll understand what the surah is talking about exactly. A literary image in mind. A rich snob whose nose is sort of high in the air, who evaluates everything according to status, feeding the, the indigent, the poor, is not a matter of moral imperative and it is not a and, and it is not a matter of um, necessity you know in, and consequently their position to it could be simple aloofness rather than opposition but that in itself is despicable in other words, and this is actually how majority of the people are. It is not that they, you come and tell them, should we fear and feed the poor? And they say, absolutely not. They are simply aloof to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? They are um, alienated from the idea. They have no uh, intimate connection to the notion of feeding the poor. They might do it. And here, note. Their characteristic is not that they don't give money to the poor. They might. But it is not a cause for them. It is not really an issue. They are aloof from the issue. They might do it if someone, some poor person comes and says, can you give me some money? They would. While looking down their nose at them because of their status. Here's the, the verse before it comes in. They might give them money. But to them... This is not a social, social cause, or this is not a cause at all. It is not a main issue. They're, they are aloof, and um, what is the word I'm looking for that means same thing as aloof, but even is closer to me? Detached from the whole notion? Indifferent. Indifferent in many ways. In other words, they, they are um, 
despite of the fact that they could be in a position to turn it into a cause, they're not. So here you start understanding the, 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 again the boundaries of this, of this characteristic that the Quran is talking about. One is that person's actions do not confirm a claim of belief. Their actions are inconsistent with their claim of piety or belief. Two is they repulse, they repulse human beings or um, keep human beings at arm's length. What, repulse is, what is repulsing someone but keeping them at arm's length? They try to come close to you, you say, uh-uh, stay where you are. Because of that person's status. They might give money to the poor, but it is not a real cause for them, nor an issue. Their, 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 their attitude toward, towards it is more one of indifference and uh, aloofness. This sort of a, a non-issue in many ways. Okay. Once it reaches this point, then it says, Now here, the, the, the structure of the sentence changes. Here you have a unit that is coherent and consistent. Then the structure of the sentence changes to give you what? How is it translated? So woe to the worshippers. Uh -huh. So, so, what does that, what does that mean? The, huh? Yeah. It tra yeah, transition. So means, it's, 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 so it's like, it's saying as a result, right? As a result, as a consequence. If this, then. Yeah, it's sort of the logic, the, the logical structure of if this, if A, then B. So are we saying that if you are like that, you, for, for, so woe to the worshippers that what? Who are neglectful of their okay. Neglectful of their prayers? Yeah. Okay, note here. If you stop there, woe to, the pray, to, to those who pray, it makes no sense. So you have to continue on. No. It does not say, It does not say, those who are in their prayers, neglectful. Because sahi, what does sahi mean? From sahu. Sahu means to be forgetful, to forget, to daydream. So if you are daydreaming, you are in a state of sahu. If you are, if you forget something, it's called sahu. You, the, the, the difference between sahu and nisyan is sahu has an element of daydreaming and, and lack of reality. So it is not, woe to those who pray, who are forgetful inside of their prayers, meaning who daydream during their prayers, but actually to those who are forgetful about their prayers. An salatihim sahun. 
they are forgetful about their prayers. Well, forgetfulness about your prayers could have two different forms. And this is, uh, you won't find this in too many tafsirs, the two different forms of forgetfulness. Form number one is that you simply forget Salat al-Asr, for example, or you forget to pray Asr, you forget to pray Isha, you forget to pray Maghrib, right? So one of, your, one of the characteristics is that you, are, you forget to pray a, a prayer. The problem, though, is how is it that if I flip my nose at people because of their status, and have an aloof attitude towards those who are disadvantaged. In what sense does this contribute? Because I say, as a result, if A then B, so, fire away. In what sense does this then contribute towards me forgetting Asr or Dhuhr or whatever? Well, this brings in the second sense of forgetting your prayers. An salatihim sahun. It is not only that they forget to pray, but they forget what their prayers, what the implications and the necessary consequences of being praying human beings, uh, uh, I'm sorry, what the implications and the necessary consequences of praying are. So in other words, what it's telling you is, it's, it's a beautiful art, literary construct. I mean, the, the way it starts out by saying there are those who give the lie to, in, 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 a, in a way, don't trust God. They don't really fundamentally believe in accountability. They don't really fundamentally, in any true sense, believe in God's sovereignty. How is that their behavior contradicts what they say or what they do. Then you say, oh, how is that? You say, but, but, and how do I no, no get to know these people? So, well, you need reflection and true perception and be, to be able to catch a human being like that, including yourself. A human being like that could be you that it's talking about. Well, let me start out by describing to you what they do, the, these actions. What they do is they judge people according to their status. And when it comes to other human beings and what other human beings need, they're completely self-centered. They, they really advocate no caretaking towards others because they're essentially self-centered and self-revolving. So why they might give some money to someone, because, I mean, but that's not the point. They do not call for the taking care of others. They do not encourage it. They do not advocate it. In other words, they aloof. They're distant from it. These are their characteristics. Then you ask, well, how did they get this way? And it says, well, because they have forgotten what their prayers should mean to them. In other words, this is a way of telling you it's as if they've forgotten what prayers are there for. If you look in any of the tafsir or most tafsirs that you, you would have available to you, 
it would say, oh, means that they forget to pray every once in a while. But then the problem you confront here is there could be someone like that who never forgets to pray. I mean, all of us know people who actually are methodical about every prayer, but yet are despicable human beings. Alternatively, you could have people who are actually quiet, the contrary to what is described, but yet forget to pray every, every once in a while a prayer, and then they say, astaghfirullah, and they pray it color. I mean, of course, if they don't make it up at all, we're, we're talking about major sin. That's something different. So how could the surah be limiting itself to this? And here you realize that, no, it's saying, an salatin sahun means that they are not they are not cognizant. They do not they are not remindful or mindful. They are not mindful. They do not remind themselves of what these prayers that they do should mean. What they should mean is to negate the status, repulse according to the repulsing the orphan. What they should mean is etc. etc. The, 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 the matter identified before. And that's why, why you have someone like Mujahid who says Sahun means Lahun means that you forget. You have someone like Qutada says Sahun means Ghafilun that you forget to pray every once in a while. And in fact, some have said that um, uh, there. So the Prophet is reported to have said, well, this verse is talking about those who delay their prayers to the last minute. The problem here, number one, is that not everyone accepted the, the authenticity of, 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 even if they accepted the authenticity of the hadith, they didn't accept the authenticity of the report that says that this hadith relates to this verse. But you should know that one of, one of the reports says that the, this, is the, this is what the Prophet said, that this verse is talking about those who delay their prayers to the last minute. But of course, as you would expect, that Ibn Ali and Ibn Abbas both, from the early, from the early companions, they said, well, there are two things here. One is that who delays their prayer to the last minute, the feel no enthusiasm about praying anyway. I mean, they, they're doing it more as a formality. And it effectively, prayer lost its meaning for them. It's an act they perform, but it, it does not educate them. It does not tell them, it does not teach them morally anything. It does not provide a moral instruction to them. So what is this, really, what is this verse really talking about? Not just those who delay their prayers to the last minute, but those who learn nothing from their prayers. This is very much like, I mean, you find this in, in, uh, in a lot of contexts, in, 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 in a lot of, among, among Muslims. You find Muslim who out of some reason or another, you know, prays five times a day, but will literally finish praying Isha and go commit sin. Or finish praying Dhuhr and go commit sin. And you can't say, these are the people identified by the, by the verse, in other words, their prayer is in a state of oblivious forgetfulness for them. 
They do it, but it means nothing. It teaches nothing. Okay. Then it now it's describing to you those who are forgetful about their prayer. Those who are hypocritical. How is it translated? Those who want but to be seen of men. Of men. Yeah, in other words, the, the translation is referring to something very, very specific form of hypocrisy. That they pray primarily so that people will see them praying, but other than that, it means nothing to them. But there's another form of hypocrisy. And that's when you deceive. What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is deception, right? Hypocrisy is fundamentally deception. When I pray in front of you in order to deceive you, so you think I'm religious and I'm not, I'm deceiving you, and that's a hypocrisy. It's representing what is not. But you could also be hypocritical with yourself by deceiving yourself. So that, in other words, you pray to tell yourself you're a good person. But you are really a hypocrite with your own self because you know, because you're not. Let me give you a very concrete picture. And, and, and you know, you run into kids like that all the time. You find a kid who prays five prayers a day. They usually will do their prayers the last minute and usually do it very fast. Have you ever had the displeasure of seeing people pray and then you start reciting the fatha with them like they're praying in the mosque and you're looking at them and you notice they're going up and down very quickly. So you start reciting the fatha and you're halfway during the fatha and they're in ruku'ah already. And you can't figure out how the heck do they say it so quickly. And then you discover that these people commit sins that go as far as sometimes as fornication and drinking alcohol or etc etc but yet they pray or some other lesser forms of sin I mean it doesn't need to be that far but yet they pray here the hypocrisy and they might just pray privately just at home the hypocrisy is directed to themselves prayer is a form of sustaining to themselves their own self-worth of telling themselves we're not bad people but in fact, they are deceiving themselves and lying to themselves and being hypocritical with their own selves. And that's why, from, again, Ali and Ibn Abbas, from the companions, and then later on, many, of, many, 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 many of the, uh, 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 um, of the commentators and, and jurists said, Riya'in nafs, lin nafs. Riya'in nafs is the hypocrisy of the self against the self. That those who are hypocrites, it is not just hypocrisy vis-a-vis -vis others, it is not just hypocrisy vis-a-vis -vis God, but, but fundamentally, fundamentally, and before all else, it's in nafs nafs that you are a hypocrite with yourself against yourself. And finally, they are hypocritical and by their hypocrisy fascinating expression in itself 
First, how is it translated? But refuse to supply even neighborly needs. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's much more general than that. Yamna'oon al-ma'oon. Yamna'oon means what? To, huh? to prevent, to refuse, to stand as an obstacle before, before something. So if I say, عندك مانع, do you have an objection? To object, you say, ليس عندي مانع, I have no objection. Or, say, أنا أمنعك, I forbid you. So, yamna means to stand basically as an obstacle. Or prevent. Al-ma'oon comes from the word awana, which means assistance, help. Ma'oon, the help. Now, let me tell you all the different, I mean, there's so many different theorizing about what this fabulous word means, ma'oon. One school said it means al-ma'roof. Good. They, they prevent good. Other schools said, no, it means ta'a, obedience to God. They prevent obedience to God. Three said, you know, Quraysh used to call money ma'un. In the language of Quraysh, not in the language of Arabic, but in the language of specifically of Quraysh, money used to be called ma'un. And so, said, well, this is the school that said the Quran must always be interpreted according to Qurayshi language uh, or Qurayshi usage. Then, it, then according to that school that it says they, they prevent money from being given to the poor. So it's sort of somewhat redundant. It is not only that they don't encourage giving to the poor, they even prevent giving money to the poor. School number four said, no, al-ma'oon comes from the word al-ma'in. Ma'in means the, the, the source of water. So it's really talking about those who will not even give water to people. They are so miserable that if you come and ask them for water, they don't give it to you. The fifth school said, no, al-ma'oon is what neighbors usually borrow and exchange with each other. Like buckets, um, uh, pots and pans, um, gardening equipment, axes and racks and so on. Now this is fascinating because maybe in their days neighbors would exchange these things, pots and pans, and, and even in the traditional parts of Egypt, yeah, I mean every time you need a pot you just go to your neighbor. But then it, it has a very contextual application because here in the United States I don't think very few people can sh readily share their pots and pans and tools and things like that with their neighbors. Six said, no, ma'un really is the truth. So they prevent the truth. The sixth school, the seventh school rather, said, no, ma'un is uh, the, uh, the um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? When you, the, the principle of money. In other words, they, or I'm sorry, the, the ma'un is, is the, 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 invest, the benefit that comes from money, the opposite of principle, in that they prevent 
people from being able to acquire benefits from their principles. Here, then, it refers to the orphans that they 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 make them sure make if the principle of of the of the money of the orphan, which is entrusted to them, is invested, they steal the profits. So then, it becomes a very specific meaning. The eighth school said no. In other words, they do not like to help, even when it doesn't really cost them much to help, even when it's really not much of an inconvenience for them to help. The eighth school, these were the legally minded, those who had studied law, said no. Ma'un is that in Islam there are certain things which people have a right to. And if asked, you must supply. Otherwise, you incur sin. In other words, this is, it's not that you have discretion. According to these jurists, these things were water, salt, and fire. Water, and you can of course see the, 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 the context of the age they're in. Fire was something, you know, if, if your fire goes out at your home, you literally need to go buy or borrow fire from a neighbor. Literally. Before, of course, the invention of, uh, not the invention, but the discovery of... Uh, ma- uh, yeah, what is this? The matches made of phosphorus, right? Um, so you literally need to go to a neighbor to borrow a fire. So when your neighbor denies you a fire, you've got a serious problem. Especially if you and Yever are the only inhabitants for you know several miles. Salt, for apparent reasons, uh, the, the necessity of salt as a spice for the ability to even consume or in fact purify food, clean food. And finally water for, you know, okay. So, however, none of these nine schools are Inevitable. In other words, yes, they might give you a sense of ma'un. And again, you know my approach to these things in that I always have a tendency to say all of them are meant, could be meant by the word in different degrees. One must look to the essential value conveyed. They are hypocrites with themselves. And one must also find systematic coherence. They are hypocrites with themselves. We understood this and, and with others. They deceive themselves. We understood that. When they do that, when they live a life in which they keep repulse human beings or 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 keep people at arm's length because of their status, when they live a life where they are aloof and detached from who's poor and who's rich, in other words, taking care of the poor, particularly. When these people pray, do formal prayer, but their prayer is it's self-deception as well as deception of others, what is the net result of that? The net result of that Remember that one of the definitions, one of the meanings of, of, of ma'un is ma'ruf, which is generally good, is whether advertently or inadvertently, their behavior stands as an obstacle to the spread of true 
and good values in society. From a direct point of view, when they evaluate people according to status and not assist the poor, etc., etc., you can see the connection very clearly, very simply. But from a non-direct point of view or an indirect point of view, is that when they transform their prayers into this mechanical act of hypocrisy, what is the net result of, of Islamic values in a social setting? It loses its meaning. It loses its spirit. Now, as you would expect, if you knew Ibn Taymiyyah rather well, Ibn Taymiyyah is one of the main advocates of this position. Ibn Taymiyyah is saying, he comes in and says, it is not that, well, Ma'un means that you don't give salt and water. Yeah, maybe that's one of the things. But it is that generally by acting out or giving legitimacy to hypocrisy as the order of the day, you have negated the value of or you have emptied Islam of its spirit as well. My addition, of course, is, is I mean, it's, it's complicated because the way Ibn Taymiyyah says it is, is similar to that, but not exactly. And then, of course, the notion that, that the word in the Quran itself can embody all of these legitimate meanings that apply to, to different contexts. I mean, that apply in different contexts as the situation requires. So, yes, one of the consequences of that, of this sort of form of hypocrisy, is obviously, is that one uh, shows, uh, uh, one does not give salt and fire and so on. But one can't limit it to that because it, it says, they prevent their behavior results in an active, active prevention of good, ma'roof. And what is good and what is ma'roof? It is Islamic values. And how do their behavior prevent that? Is it that they go around telling people to be evil? Not necessarily. Perhaps it could be, but not necessarily. It could be simply by the precedent they set in society. Things are, rendered, are deconstructed and rendered and corrupted within Islam and within Muslim society itself. Okay, that's it. This would have finished. I wish there was more for me to comment on, but <laughs> this is where God decided to end the surah. Now, the next, inshallah, next week, I'm going to try to cover two surahs for a reason. Is that... Um, the Ilafi Quraysh, according to, to an influential school, influential school, is that it was it is part and parcel of the surah before it, which is Alam Field. So, in fact, a majority of commentators say you cannot understand one without the other. In other words, these are. Like, they're the dual. 
these two surahs are dual. So they sort of go hand in hand. However, if I find that I can't do it time-wise, then we'll do one and then another, and then we'll just connect them. Like we did with Qul Azra Bil Falak, Qul Azra Bil Nas. Yes, sir. I have two questions. One was um, at the very beginning, I didn't quite get the people who mentioned that this was a, a Mecca and Surah. I didn't get the names. Oh. Um, okay. Oh, Ata and Jabr. Ata and Jabr. The second question I have is, um, the companions. Yeah. You, um, I wasn't sure if you were going to, or if you already done it, but um, you were about to go on to the Versailles. You go, I think it's the Dawn? Yeah. In, uh, um, before you went on to verse 3, you were just about to talk yeah. about, about uh, the, the Dawn, al Yatim, and uh, you didn't quite get the verb. Yeah. I was wondering if you wanted to talk about that still. What? Verse three, no verse uh, verse two. Oh, yeah, yeah. As opposed to the You didn't. You started thinking about it, and then you just kind of went to the next verse, and you didn't say anything to say about it. Say about what? That word, yadu'a. Oh, yadu'a. Simply, no. All, all. What I was saying is that in the Quran that you have, it's yadu'a yatim, right? which means to repulse the, the orphan. And then I started talking about the orphan being in status and all that. And then in another qira'ah, one of the qira'ahs, it's yada'u. Yada'u al-yateen. Um, it's a subtle point of sort of language. Yada'u means to leave. But yada'u, when it's used in the context with a human being, it is not leave in the sense of pick up and leave. It is sort of in the sense of with aloofness to abandon. Like if you say, yada'u, yada'u rajul, huh? means like you, you have this attitude of piff, you're nothing. That's yada'u. That's what Yada'u Yatim would be. It's like you have the other, you, oh, you don't exist. You, you're an orphan. Is it hmm? or is it because the sort of was uh, the humble. No, no. No, La means that does not advocate. And then I said, well, that's probably basically an aloofness. I'm not here. Yada'u means to leave. Literally, it doesn't mean aloof. It means to leave. But I'm saying. The sense of leaving, conveyed by the word yada'u, is a sense of aloofness. I'm not saying yada'u means aloof. Yeah, it's like, exactly, exactly. It's like the time, let them eat cake. When you know, people are start, they, they, they start, they're rebelling, why are they rebelling? Because they can't find bread? Oh, well, let them eat cake. That's yada'u, sort of yada'u, yada'u is slightly different. Yadu'u, it's exactly like that, aloof, arrogant, but also with an element of resentment, nearly hate. The difference is, my attitude could be, let them eat cake, and then I go off, do whatever I do, play golf, okay? If I am yadu'u al-yateem, not just yadu'u al-yateem, I would say, 
<laughs> well, that's because they're lazy fools. They walk off and play golf. I've just done, I've done yadol, not yadal. The second, the, the other one is yadal yadi. So here, it's an element of yes, the end result is the same, but it's an element of um, um, sort of resenting the status of the orphan. In many ways, again, it's um, one of my sheikhs portrayed it this way. He says, okay, someone of the wrong status comes to, uh, uh, um, um, comes to marry your daughter. You could have the attitude of, very nice, very nice, uh, uh, well, um, Oh, it's not going to work, you know, it's not going to work. Well, why? Well, you know, it's, uh, uh, we're very different people. And, you know, you live in, uh, you live uh, in Darb al-Ahmar, and we live in, in Zamanak, you know, we're very different. this is what my sheikh said. And you walk off, that's it. You end the meeting and you're gone. That's Yadaw, okay? If you were Yadaw, you would be you, you want to marry my daughter? And then you walk off. That's the difference. Both end up with a human being very hurt, very demoralized. Because, I mean, the, other, the first scenario, it's not like you go say, oh, he was so polite. In fact, you might even be more hurt. Because you think that he's so arrogant, but he, he, won't, he won't communicate it to you. Uh, but that's the distinction. It's a very... Did you talk about the reason for revelation and the occasion? Well, I just, I, I dismissed it. In other words, I said that all these reports say that it was revealed about this companion, this companion, I mean, I'm sorry, this companion, that it was revealed about this individual, this individual, this individual, but I said all of them were kuffar. All of them were non-believers, except for one report which says it, revealed, it was revealed about Abu Sufyan after he converted to Islam when, a, a, uh, um, uh, when a, an orphan came to, came to ask him something and he just pushed him away with a stick. He didn't hit him. He like shoved him away and said, like, stay away from me. Um, but I don't consider any of them, and actually commentators, I'm not, I can't say all of them, but the majority of commentators do not consider any of these reports reliable for a variety of reasons, but primary, primarily is that it is talking about people who pray. Is that that the prayer is hypocrisy? So how could it be revealed about any person like Abu Jahl, who's a Catholic? Because these people don't pray, they pray to idols. So the, I'm, what I'm saying is that the occasion for revelation is non-specific. It's, it's God teaching us a moral lesson about hypocrites, which makes me feel, by the way, it was revealed in Medina and not Mecca. Because in Medina, there were a lot of people who had converted to Islam, but remained very hypocritical. In sense, they always go to, they go to prayer, they attend prayer with the Prophet, but their behavior was despicable. I mean, in fact, there was a whole... Uh, um, even their behavior when, when some of them went around accusing the Prophet's wife, Aisha of having an affair with someone I mean, how can you say that a prayer stands for anything? 
or their, their arrogant attitudes that, and particularly, by the way, after Mecca fell, which I think this is a revelation that late. I mean, that's, that's just my own ishtihad on it. After Mecca fell, a lot of the people who already were Meccans, and remember the Meccans were the most classist, arrogant, self-centered human beings on the face of this earth. I mean, everything was, who's your father and what clan do you come from? That was it. If you were from, is he okay? Chief, get down. If he was, if you were from Khuza'a or from Hashem or Banu Talib, then you're in the, then you're in the, is he down? If you're from Khuza'a or Hashem or Banu Talib, then you're on the ballgame, status wise. Now the second issue is who's your father? Actually, two more. Third, how much money do you have? But you could be the most brilliant human being in the world. If you were not from Banu Talib or Khuza'a or Hashim, who cares? Go blow. I mean, this was literally the attitude of the Meccans. When many of them converted, they carried, and it's like the Prophet, when he's an orphan, he was 20 years old, and if uh, remember, I mean, he proposed to marriage to someone before he proposed to Khadija. And they rejected him simply because he was an orphan. If you are an orphan, this was one of these categories, status, which is, I mean, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how much money you inherited from your father, you're poo-poo, <laughs> like, literally. And so, when a lot of these people later on converted, particularly when when it, these mass conversions that came late, like Hind, right? They, it, they changed nothing. They prayed, they fasted Ramadan, was a lot of whining and complaining, um, but really did not change any of their essential characteristics. And several surahs, and you'll see this in the Quran, several surahs come in and slams these people. Tell me you're hypocrites. I mean, you're, and, and part of it, it's a famous surah. Don't say you are Mu'mins. Say you're Muslims. But Iman hasn't entered your heart. And this is, this is ultimately when, when the Prophet, because there, one of the parts of the seerah, which we will not get into in the life of the Prophet class, is the Prophet is really unhappy with these segments. And Allah comes in several times and then the declaration is made in the Quran. You say you are mu'mins. No, you're not. Learn to distinguish between Islam and Iman. You are Muslims, but you are, have nothing to do with Iman. This which the Prophet didn't dare say. Because you remember the Prophet, every time everyone would tell him, well, they're hypocrites, he'd say, well, how do you know what's in their heart? How do you know what's in their heart? That was consistently his response. And then Allah came and said, well, you do not know what is in their heart. Allah knows what's in their heart. And they have nothing of Iman. They only have Islam. And, and this, this is despite of the fact that they prayed and all of that. But it's a long, and we'll comment about, upon it as we talk about other surahs. 
the the Qurans it's it's you know Allah knows and probably I mean knows that now the religion is growing very fast and the core values of the religion must be preserved and solidified and consolidated because ultimately this is what's going to live this is what's going to survive and so there are a series of revelations distinguishing between the, the different levels of Iman, among them is the one that I gave a khutbah about, the, the one which says there are those who are real hypocrites, simple hypocrites, those who are mixed, they combine good, good with evil, and then there are those who are truly believers. And that's one of the things that in the modern age it's not fashionable to study anymore, I mean, but uh, um, it used to occupy an enormous amount of Islamic discourse because of the fact you remember that the Muslim empire was quite huge. And there were a lot of people who would, literally, you would have populations. Whole populations convert at one time. Muslims wanted to make sure, and particularly the, the, um, the, their main concern is that these huge populations that were converting that they would not bring in corruptions to Islamic values. And consequently, in pre-Islamic times, I mean not pre-Islamic, sorry, in pre-modern times, there was a lot of discourse about these issues relying on the Quranic discourse on it. Um, this is one of the main things, for example, between the Shafi'is, the main fights between the Shafi'is and Hanafis. That when the Hanafis came and said, that wealth and family lineage could be one of the reasons to uh, uh, rule against a marriage. This is the issue of kafa'ah, right? Um, uh, eligibility. The Shafi'is, and as well as the Hanbalis, by the way, uh, were outraged by this and looked at, looked at this as a Hanafi incorporation of the culture of al-Hind and al-Sindh, which is modern India, which used to be called Hind and Sindh, and the culture of the Persians. Well, the Persians became a passé issue because the Persians converted to Ja'fari Islam uh, during the Safavids. I mean, that wasn't too, that long ago, despite the fact that people think that Persia was always Shia. It wasn't. So it became a non-issue. Um, but the, the panic by the Hanbalis and the Shafi'is about the entry of classism into Islam. Um, Malikis less so, because Malikis, Malikis were very mixed. I mean, they entered cultures that were already quite egalitarian in certain contexts, and, or, and already not in certain contexts. In sub-Saharan Africa, for example, where Malikism spread, there was a lot, already quite a bit of egalitarianism. So the issue did not concern them as much. They didn't see it as, as much of a threat. But what remains at the heart of all of this is what the Quran said about it initially. I mean, you can read all the books of law and, and, and commentaries of the Quran you want, I mean, or theology that you want, books of law or theology that you want. But where does it all start? It all starts with what Allah said about what Islam came to do for human beings.
And then when we talk about later, much later, inshallah, that when it came and said that we have made the Prophet witness upon you and you witnesses upon humanity. Well, if you're going to be, if you're going to be witnesses upon someone, you better be darn good yourself. Then it was demanding that, human, that Muslims would uphold a standard of morality that stands in opposition vis-a-vis all form of decrepitness that exists among humanity. Because we have made you witnesses upon humans and made the Prophet witness upon, upon you. In other words, the Prophet is going to bear witness upon our decrepitness or our fault in the final day. But we are supposed to be not superior to humanity, but we are supposed to be the conscience of humanity. Literally, the Prophet is our conscience, and we are supposed to be the conscience of humanity. Sort of the, the, the voice of right and justice, whatever humanity does. You say this, and then you nearly want to chuckle. And laugh, because far from it. I mean, we are the, probably the voice of insanity and lunacy uh, among of, of humanity. But but this is how the Quran actually structured the whole deal. In, in the thirtieth part, it comes in and says, "Here are the values, that you, the core values that you must learn." And then it comes and imposes a logic of viceroyship and shahada and bearing with testimony and then brings these values within a set of social order and legal regulations which it explains founded on a religious belief system which is already established in in these early surahs but this whole cohesive um, uh, powerful structure is of course became completely compromised and undone in our contemporary age. Thank you. Well, we pray Maghrib and then we, we are free to frolic. I don't know.